Welcome to the Psychedelic Integration Podcast. I'm Sinclair Fleetwood, your psychedelic life coach, and I teach you how to connect with your soul mission, follow your heart, and make lasting changes in your life by creating a sacred spiritual partnership with plant medicines. Learn easy tools, tips, and integration strategies that will demystify the psychedelic renaissance and open the way for you to come back home to yourself. If I can do it, you can do it too. Find out how here. Hey family, it's Sinclair. Welcome to the show. So glad you're here. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate you. Oh man, it's fall? Almost. It's not quite. We're not quite there yet, but I can tell the leaves are starting to fall a little bit here. Uh, It's getting a little nippy in the mornings and I don't know about you, but I live for this season. It is so delicious and so cozy and invigorating and inspiring and I feel creative and I feel connected to the earth and I'm so excited to be in a place where there is a like actual fall season and it doesn't just last for two weeks. I'm very excited about this and the fall for me energetically has always been a time of of harvest of gathering my energy home to me and bringing my best intentions forward. And I think that comes from, you know, this, this ancestral deep knowing that when you celebrate your harvest, you are celebrating all of the seeds that you've planted and enjoying the bounty that you've put in, you know, all the work that you've done this year already that is coming now to fruition, to feed you, to nourish you. And that's also when you choose the seeds for the next time. And when you start to save and put away, you know, preserve the food, the everything that you're going to need to get you through the winter. You know, I'm a big believer in living by the seasons. And this is the energy I'm feeling. It's like big expansion energy. So if you are vibing with the big expansion energy, I'm here for it. And I'm here to support you. You can book a, a free coaching connection session with me where we have a deep conversation all about you, where you are, what you are looking for, how you need support. And, you know, integration is not just about plant medicine. It's about integrating everything that's happening in your life. Everything is medicine. And you get to decide how do you bring that into your daily life so that it makes a real difference. You know, if you want to see changes, how do you get there? So book a call, let's get connected, let's get a hot cup of something spice, pumpkin spice, and let's see how we can move you forward. Thanks for being here. Enjoy this episode. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. I'm Sinclair. I'm so glad you're here. And today I have a really amazing guest with me. This is my very first friend that I made when I moved to Asheville. Justin Cosmore is a native Appalachian. He is of mixed heritage, including Irish, Scottish, and Yuchi. And he's also known as Cos. His friends call him Cos. He is an initiate of the Caro and Paco lineages of modern day Peru and has worked as a youth wilderness mentor, a yoga teacher, a music producer, and a vocalist. He's currently in grad school for marriage and family therapy and is forming his own practice. And He is the co-founder of the Appalachian Association for the Study of Psychedelic Experiences, also known as APEX, 
which is set to host its first event called Psychedelic South Conference in 2024. Cause tell me your story. How did you find your way to working with plant medicine? Beautiful. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so my journey with medicines, uh, I think for me, I had my novel experiences in high school uh, where it was, you know, uh, trying mushrooms with my friends and listening to music and going out into the woods and, um, you know, initially just sort of getting it, so to speak, like I, I felt closer to nature and I felt a little more joy and connection. And, you know, those novel experiences were fun. Um, but I don't think they really like got in anything particularly deep, but they were fun. And so it actually wasn't until um, about 2013, where I decided I wanted to start learning how to lucid dream. And um, I started to learn that and I eventually was successful uh, and had my first lucid dream. Can you, and, can you explain what lucid dreaming is for people who don't know what it is? Okay, sure. Yeah. So to me, there's like a, a, a distinction between a lucid dream and an out-of-body experience, which I had both. So a lucid dream is when you're asleep and you're inside of a dream and you become conscious in that dream uh, so that you can talk to characters in the dream or, or you have a little, more, a little bit more control than just being the observer of a dream. You're inside of it, and now you're taking action, and you're aware. You can see things, and you have an awareness in the dream. An out-of-body experience is, um, depending on the lens, it's sort of like it's separating your physical body into an energetic body, and then also having control within inside of that energy body uh, in somewhere, wherever there is, or wherever you go when you have that ability, I don't know. <laughs> I'm pretty humble to that. Um, but yeah, that's the distinction for me. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, I, I had the lucid dream, and I became aware in the dream. And it didn't last for too long, but I knew I was inside the dream. And I started to get excited, which usually pulls you out of the lucid dream. Um, and when that happened, it actually sort of like, pushed me into an out-of-body experience where I was able to feel the separation of an energy body and my physical body. I was able to look back at my physical body, and then I kind of snapped out of the dream back into waking reality. And I defined that moment as like a, 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 a um, switch into um, believing in a higher power of some kind. It, yeah, I wasn't completely an atheist or anything at the time. I was definitely more agnostic and I still am in some ways, but in that moment, I knew there was something much bigger than me that had some kind of hand in my soul, heart, and life. Mm -hmm. um, so that prompted an interest in shamanism and uh, I got really interested in learning about it and reading about it and was buying the books uh, eventually started with an organization called the Pachacuti Mesa tradition. Um, that was started by a guy named Don Oscar Miro Quesada. Um, and it's a cross-cultural shamanism year-long apprenticeship series. So I started that. And in the first, um, so it's five sessions over a year, five weekends over a year. And in the first weekend, I heard Quechua for the first time. 
And I immediately knew, wow, I love this language. Mm -hmm. What is it? I want to know everything about it. Uh, And that sort of prompted my interest into more like, oh, wait a minute, I have heard about ayahuasca and some of these other things. Mm -hmm. Hadn't tried them yet. Although in 2012, I I gave a a talk on legalizing Iboga um, in East Tennessee in my college in my argumentation and debate class. So something in me was kind of keen to like, hey, there's something here worth noticing. Um, And, you know, it all got catalyzed by um, in, I think it was 2016. um, I was dealing with uh, indigestion and GERD and acid reflux, like even just eating a smoothie would give me extreme indigestion. And I was just really uncomfortable for like several months. Uh, And so I started trying a little bit of everything. It was diet and lifestyle, like, okay, got to stop drinking, got to like really get my shit together. I'm going to start meditating and doing yoga. And um, so towards the end of that, I'm working with the naturopath and the naturopath uh, has me do this 10 day, like all supplements on deck cleanse, so to speak. So I did it all. It was, you know, um, let's see. Uh, enzymes and um, licorice and all the herbal teas and everything you can think for the di- for digestion. I did that for 10 days. Um, and then two days later, I drank ayahuasca for the first time um, through a lineage that um, has been working together for over 15 years. And it's through the lineage of Don Jose Campos. And I drank my first uh, cup of ayahuasca in 2016. And it was the the catalyst for everything. Um, I, I I had that. Uh, I said the thing that a lot of people say. Wow, that was like ten years of psychotherapy in a night, you know. And I'm pretty so, sure I've said that too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's the it's like the experience. You're like, oh wow, that was really. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. What what else? Like, I don't know how else to explain it when people are like, hey, how was your experience? Yeah. Uh, 10 years of psychotherapy and it was like that. And and of course, I think most of us find out that it is like that, but often it is not. Mm -hmm. Um, It, it gets at a lot and maybe you get to the core of the things that therapy wants you to get at, but then you've got to unravel that. And Mm -hmm. that's been my experience since that first cup in 2016. And it was actually two cups. (laughs) Um, I drank the first cup and about an hour in, I didn't really feel much. And they called for the second cup. So I drank the second cup. And before I even got back to my seat, the first cup kicked in and they were full cups, both of them. (laughs) Why is it like that? It's I don't know. I've drank eight (laughs) times now total and a number of different scenarios and stuff. And I haven't been as deep as that first time as far as what I experienced and the visuals and all the stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My partner, John, um, he had a similar experience where he, he sometimes he'll say like, ayahuasca gave me a lifetime worth of work to do in the first journey. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why she's not handed me more, you know, intense intensity in the uh-huh. years following that, because it, the first yeah. one was just like, we're going to download, like everything got downloaded and like, it's slowly being revealed over time. And I really like thinking about it like that because, you know, sometimes people start to worry. They're like, well, you know, it worked for me this first time. Like, why is it not, why isn't it like that every time? 
And it's like, well, maybe you're still unraveling the beginning, you know, like maybe the beginning lasts for the rest of your life in this lifetime. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. yeah. Yes, it, it definitely <laughs> does. You know, I mean, my first one really like kind of peeled back the layers of like mother trauma. And, and so like you're, I'm in relationship to my mom for the rest of my life, mm-hmm. you know, so that's there and mm-hmm. it's, you know, I, I've listened to um, a lot of uh, Adam Aronovich's uh, content from Healing from Healing on Instagram. And mm-hmm. um, he, a conversation he had the other day was like, it's interesting how ayahuasca and others like inspire traditional values. Um, and, and I hadn't worded it like that before, but I'm like, well, I guess that's what's happened. I've, I'm like, oh, no, well, I need to like focus on my relationship with my family and my parents and start to heal those relationships and have a better, you know, more authentic experience with them. Mm -hmm. That's a really important thing to bring up. It's, I don't know anyone that has continued on the path of medicine that hasn't had that happen at least a little bit, you know, where, one of my teachers, Matthias, always says the work of the medicine is to the first thing you have to do is heal your relationship with your mother and father. Mm. Everybody across the board, like start with that. If you don't know what to do, that's your work. Like, and then as you are unfolding that and starting to understand yourself, for me, I came from like a really intense, progressive, liberal kind of, you know, radical <laughs> um protesting in the streets like i mean i'm from texas so our politics there are like we just you know we need to be protesting in the streets it's like very oppressive mm-hmm. especially to women mm-hmm. um and and i had to untangle a lot of like feminism that didn't feel very true for me anymore and it actually felt kind of damaging like that ideology of I need to be able to do what a man can do. What I was beginning to realize is that women have completely different superpowers than men. Mm. And when we are, you know, like the desire for equality is important and like understandable, but it's also driven by this modern, you know, the traditional gender roles are actually very valuable and like supportive to us. And mm. hearing myself say that and think that way, like, kind of fucked me up. <laughs> oh, yeah, I understand. <laughs> you know? I understand, yeah. Um, like, thinking about, like, wow, what a joy it must have been to be, you know, in a group of, you know, living in a tribe of people where the women are, like, hunting and gathering and the men are going out and being warriors and, like, everyone's working together and we're all using our skill sets in the most valuable way for the whole community. And I'm like... <gasps> Oh my God. Like, it's so, I was like ashamed that I was feeling like Mm -hmm. to this old way of living. And now like all my friends are like, how do we live in the woods? Like, let's get a homestead and let's learn how to churn butter and get a root cellar. And I'm like, yes. Yeah. Have you had any of those kinds of experiences? I know you do some work like with, um, I don't know the name of it. I know you go to like men's men's circles or yeah, yeah. like men's stuff. So can you talk about how, like connecting to those traditional values has looked for you as a man? Mm. Well, you know, I tend to go all in when it comes to 
once I've like chosen a kind of modality of some kind or like a thing that needs healing, you know, um, the second time I drank ayahuasca, it was in Peru with a, a daughter, mother, grandmother lineage. And um, a, a lot of what came up for me in that one was really understanding how much um, the trickster, how much ayahuasca is the trickster and, 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 and brings about that kind of archetype or experience or energy. And a lot of my healing, uh, I, I think since then has been like, what is the trickster and what role is it in culture? And why am I drawn to it? And why is the medicine bringing this up in me? And, um, you know, so my, my dad and I watched Jim Carrey a lot when I was a kid and mm -hmm. I really loved Jim Carrey. Like he was one of my idols. And, um, so impersonations and being silly and just like, weird faces and all of that was a big part of uh, who I was and my relationship to my father. And um, so a month after that one, I went straight into um, a, a weekend called the New Warrior Training, which is with an organization called the Mankind Project. Um, they are probably, or I think for sure, like the oldest running men's organization in the United States. I think they started in like the eighties and they use archetypes and the magician tricksters, one of them. And can you, um, can you describe like when you say trickster, what do you mean? Mm. <laughs> it's funny. I almost, almost, I got a little nervous. I was like, Oh, I want to Google it. <laughs> <laughs> What do you think it means? I'm just curious. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, it's, it's that almost like the devil's advocate towards um, like anyone taking themselves so serious mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, that they've got all the answers or anything. It's, it's a Hermes thing too, that kind of comes in and weasels its way into your psyche. And is like, really, <laughs> you know, like, okay. Um, it's, it's, it's a, it's this like sacred role of humor of it's, a, it's, a, it's alongside the jester. So like the King had, uh, a jester in the court. The jester was the only person that could make fun of the king. Um, and the king needed that in, in order to like sort of knock himself down from any like uh, uh, super, uh, what's the dictator, like super dictator like tendencies mm -hmm. of governing yourself and your relationships. The trickster kind of has that method of coming in and saying like, Hey, yeah, we, we all lead and want to have courage in life. But if you get too far into that, I'm going to come kind of knock you down mm -hmm. uh, in a loving way, but maybe it won't feel loving. Mm -hmm. you know? um, mm -hmm. That's pretty broad, but that's a general idea of how um, I think of it. I think all the medicines have that energy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of part of the the healing it's like humbling you and and taking these 
like rigid belief systems that you have been clinging to that have created your ego and being like, none of this is real or true for you anymore. Mm -hmm. And now you need to sit in that and like, you know, you were pretty self-righteous about all of this stuff. And, I, you know, thinking like the way that I think is the right way. And I have certainly been completely torn down from that. Like if I, if I learned anything from these medicines is I have no idea about anything. Like my, my mind could change at any time because I'm always getting new information. I'm always learning new things about myself and the world. And like, I think you have to open to the idea that like that trickster might come in and totally change everything. I've never heard it described like that, but I really like that. So tell me more about how that kind of unfolded for you as far as with your, your dad and. Yeah. Yeah. So sort of like, I guess it was like 2015 was the the time I like decided to essentially confront my father with like what happened in the largest rupture in our relationship. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it, it brought a, a, I think a painful awareness to him but he was open to it, you know, and, and I give my father all the blessings for that, for being open to this conversation. And he has been ever since. And, um, working with medicines have just like asked me to get more real and real about like, what is the energy inside of me that wants to be outward in the world? And I could define that as masculine, right? What is going to, what in me, wants to unabashedly express my gifts and true desires for expression, creativity, and what other masculine voices, my dad, culture, or anything else are limiting that, or what am I allowing to limit that? And um, one thing that I've noticed and one of the key things, and I think healing my relationship with my father is, um, is that you you eventually start to see your dad as another man on the path mm -hmm. of being a man on the planet. Mm -hmm. And he's responding to all the cultural narratives that forced him into the box of who he was supposed to be. Like, I, I forget the guy's name. And I think it was like the 90s that wrote the book that said something like, well, if women are sex objects, men are success objects. Mm -hmm. Right. And so like, this is some of the things that we've had to deal with and respond to and, and fitting into capitalism. Right. And so my dad had to battle with that and he left a significant portion of my life due to depression. And, um, I can understand that a little more now as an adult through my own experiences with medicine and just with life and the complexity of how easy it is to get lost in depression and your thoughts and how hard it can be to be motivated to do anything. Um, and yeah, so like for my relationship with my father, I, I can see him in that way. And I can mm -hmm. say, wow, I, I can see him as a whole being. And I can see him as somebody who like, like my dad's from a small town. He's like a redneck dude from Southwest Virginia, but like he, he grew up around racist people, for example, you know what I mean? And so, but like he wasn't himself racist or tried his best to not be, 
you know, and he was one of the first people from the small town that he's from to even leave. He became a truck driver and traveled around the United States. And in his words, it made a country boy grow up, you know? <laughs> um, so like when I can see the, the trajectories and the life paths that, that my father has taken, I have way more compassion for him and I have way more um, patience and um, can, can view the complexities and nuances of our relationship in a different light. Yeah. Nice. So what happened? So you started exploring yourself with ayahuasca. What happened after that? How did your journey continue as you're doing this work? So I've said uh, this a couple of times, and, and sometimes I still am in a bit of a debate on what is the largest somatic liberation catalyst on my path since then? Mm -hmm. Because there's been some purges in my work with ayahuasca and wachuma and some insights from mushrooms and MDMA. Um, but arguably, perhaps more so on the somatic liberation front, like what actually, what heavy energetic thing in my body has left and remained gone, and I'm in a new frequency of like self-love and expression and ability to create relationships and that of, of the source. Uh, and honestly, I think sexual healing wins out for me as far as my experience goes if i had to put one above the other um i uh when i went through my saturn return i packed up a u-haul behind a honda civic and moved from knoxville tennessee to los angeles um never been to los angeles just woke up there and was like okay where am i at what do i want to do here and it was a big journey for me there's a lot to explore there but on this note, I went to uh, a weekend workshop with Source Tantra, um, led by Charles Muir. Um, and I went through that weekend, had a great experience. And as soon as I got out, all of my exes contacted me within a couple days. And then I met someone that I went through like a two week kind of like love bender with where we did a lot of sexual healing together. And in one of those um, I had a, like this part of my face on the right side of my face up towards my head and my lips. It was like, like I couldn't move it. I couldn't move a certain part of my lips, but in that experience, it was like a snake skin being ripped off of that part of my face. And it like vibrated and got really intense and buzzy, kind of like a combo experience. And then it was, it was gone. And it's life is the ceremony. Um, mm -hmm. and I've tried to really, um, take that to heart and, and listen to that message that life is a ceremony and life is the psychedelic experience. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, just embrace these opportunities to go through thresholds of, um, healing or, or into a new embodiment. And, um, often that's to me, like, you know, quote unquote, where the real ceremony begins is after that threshold. And it's like, okay, I'm actually experiencing a different uh, embodiment. I feel differently in my body and now I'm going to create relationships and opportunities and try to make meaning out of reality from here. 
mm-hmm. uh, in this new embodiment. So how does that like, I mean, that's sort of what integration is, right? It's like everything that you do around the psychedelic or any, I mean, I don't, integration is not just about psychedelics. Integration is every, is like becoming whole, reattaching all of your parts to yourself, like bringing everything together in this, in this holistic wholeness so that you feel at home in yourself so that you can express yourself authentically. And that's the way I think about it is like, how can you be fully yourself and not this, the mask wearing self, not like, okay, well, I get to be this person and wear this mask and I can be this person is like, how do we take all the masks off? How do we remove all the programming and like what's under there Mm -hmm. and how can you let it out into the world? Because that's really, when we talk about sharing your light and sharing your gifts and like, you know, following your soul mission or however you say it, that, that can't happen until you come together in yourself because Mm -hmm. you're not, you don't feel confident to do it when, when, if it's fake, it's like, nobody wants to be fake. Nobody really wants, nobody listening to this show wants to be doing it in a fake way. I mean, we're all, Mm -hmm. we're all doing it the fake way and it feels like shit. That's why we come to these plants in the first place. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that trick, I mean, we kind of have that trickster energy already in ourselves, like in ourselves when we're pretending, we're pretending to be something else. And the, you know, we're sort of like tricking ourselves. And then we find our path to like, oh, there's actually something else. So, so you moved to LA and got into Tantra. Mm -hmm. So what did the sexual healing look like for you? Like, mostly men are not talking about this that much. I mean, at least not around, like, I haven't heard that many men talking about it. So I'm interested to hear, like, how did this unfold for you? Yeah. Well, to give some backstory, I'm open to share, you know, so um, in high school, um, I was um, cheated on by someone uh, in the same bed. Um, While I was in the same bed, they cheated on me. I was passed out in it. And so I had this wound of betrayal. and abuse and and eventually experienced sexual abuse uh, from that same person. And, um, you know, psychedelics, like for me, slowly opened me up to the fact that, like, I wasn't sharing eye contact with anyone from that moment forward. Um, I was like, scared to connect with people. I didn't have many close relationships. And when I think back to periods of time, I'm like, oh, I really avoided eye contact with people. Um, so I sort of, you know, I just lay that as a foundation for like how and why this particular time of my life and the uh, alchemy of everything that existed produced the results that I got. Um, so I was also at that time, something I forgot to mention, I guess, was after my first ayahuasca ceremony, I get back and I'm hanging out with um, my girlfriend at the time. and. I'm like riding that ayahuasca high of the first couple of days. And, and so I tell her, look, I'm in love with you. I'm like fully committed. And I, are you fully committed? I'm in this. I wrote a song about it and like, and recorded it and played it, you know, like it was all in. And she had to be like, um, I need to sit with this, you know? And then we broke up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as a part of that, uh, I, it was like rediscovering myself afterwards. I started practicing Tantra on my own after that breakup, just reading 
some Osho books and looking online and learning about semen retention and all the things and um, just so started practicing. Let me ask you, like, can you describe Tantra? I've never talked about Tantra on this show. So can okay, you give yeah. a little definition for people who don't know what it is? Yeah. I mean, I'm not an expert in it. I, I It's it's difficult, but I'll say a couple of things about it. I mean, one to even kind of what I'm about to share to even say that's Tantra is like, uh, it's kind of um, questionable and certain people, certain people are going to have problems with calling it that. So some people call it Neo-Tantra um, or just refer to it as sacred sexuality and just mm -hmm. saying, Hey, this, maybe some of this has its, some of these practices have their roots in Tantra, but Tantra is, is, as I understand it now is the root of yoga. Like yoga yeah. came from Tantra Mm -hmm. And in and, and one path, there's like three ways to look at Tantra, red, pink, and white. So um, red is almost like kind of like hedonism in a way or something. It's like fully embrace your desires and just go after and just eat all the chocolate and just like experience the desires and pleasures of the earth. Mm -hmm. uh, white is like the purity, you know, it's like, oh, union with God in the moment is is all that will ever be needed and i don't need to even experience touch in order to experience a full body enlightenment of the moment and then pink is walking the middle ground of both saying hey i'll experience some pleasure i'll ride that as a trajectory of enlightenment um and also at times i'll recognize that like I, the union with god can happen internally mm -hmm. um, without someone else mm -hmm. um it seems it's like every path is going in all the polar like each polarity of the path like you have to you have to experience everything you have to experience the full pleasure and understand that the lack of pleasure and choosing not to experience that is part of experiencing the whole pleasure like it's really it's really like every single thing is like that i think um, i think that's a good description okay so you're into you're into tantra so how did that how did that unfold for you <clears throat> um so yeah so i was celibate for a, a, a year mm -hmm. um including up until los angeles and during that time i was just um you know reading the books practicing on my own it wasn't learning from anyone particularly it was more or less like I'm going to start exploring um, different ways to masturbate, different ways to think about sex and pleasure and exploring my body. Um, and um, it, I started exploring um, prostate massages uh, solo on my own um, and having my own healing experiences from that. And uh, which eventually led into moving to LA and and um, uh, going to Source Tantras weekend. So mm -hmm. they're one of the most um, popular, well-known uh, modern Tantra schools. They sell out all their workshops and Charles has been teaching for a long time and um, is a well-known teacher. Um, so the weekend um, looks something like it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Friday's kind of like, hey, introductions. This is what we're about. This is what a yoni looks like. This is what a lingam looks like. These are what those words mean. Um, here's some overview and history of Tantra and sacred sexuality and the intentionality of the weekend. Saturday uh, looks like um, diving deeper into all of that. Um, and 
eventually towards the end of the day, after a lot has been talked about and foundation set, um, the men and women are separated and taught how to give and receive um, a yoni massage as, as what they start with on Saturdays, Saturday evenings. Uh, there's something called a selection ritual um, where, of course, couples are there and, and couples can just practice with themselves, um, at least in the beginner weekend. Um, and uh, if you came there solo, like I did, you can take part in the selection ritual where the woman can um, choose a man to receive a, a, a yoni massage from that night if she chooses. Uh, and some men aren't chosen and and women have given the option to leave if they want or, or not choose that. Uh, and um, I was chosen and uh, experienced that with someone. And then that happens uh, outside of the event, if you so choose. And on Sunday, um, there's an integration circle that's broken down more. Stories are talked about. People share a little more education. Then the event is presumed over. Although it is mentioned that like, hey, if a man wants to receive and a woman wants to do that, that they should set that up on their own. But there's no expectations here. Um, and so often that it doesn't happen, although it did happen for me in that weekend. Um, and, you know, like some people kind of like poke fun at Yoni and lingam massages as kind of like a, a spiritual jack-off session or something. And, and in some ways it kind of is, you know, um, but uh, that's what um, both giving a massage and then receiving one was um, how I broke my year celibacy was with that weekend. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Cool. So what happened after in LA? How long did you stay there? Did you yeah. keep staying there? Did you, I mean, you came back here at some point. So I did. Yeah. So it was, I was only in SoCal for like seven months. Um, that part actually, I, I went through that healing experience and then I got an opportunity to uh, teach yoga at a lavender farm retreat center um, north of San Diego. Um, and I took that opportunity um, and I did that for about three months and it was cool. And I had a great time uh, on, on paper. It sounded really good, but it was actually very disorganized and pretty mm -hmm. difficult. You don't say um, uh, yeah, <laughs> I feel like that is kind of behind the scenes at the retreat center. Oh man, behind the scenes at the retreat center. Yeah, none of them are what you think. They're oh, all kind man. of a shit show behind there, and it's. I mean, humans are still humans. They're still human nature, and of course, we're dealing with complexities of capitalism and unhealed wounds that are trying to work themselves out inside of a financial agreement, and mm -hmm. so much is there. And that was happening for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and that place. And, um, that started to come to a close and, um, I, I didn't have a job after that. And I decided that I wanted, uh, to try and move into San Diego, but first I was going to go back to LA because I, I had left all my stuff and I had been subletting my room and, um, I was driving for Uber at the time and, uh, on the way home to the house in Los Angeles, I got in a car wreck. Um, it wasn't super major. I didn't have any sustained injuries from it or anything, but it did total my car. 
Um, and I just, you know, like a lot of car wrecks, uh, I took it as a moment of like, okay, um, what am I doing with my life right now? What's, uh, what am I prioritizing? What am I doing out here? How are things going? Mm -hmm. Um, I was fortunate enough to, um, like my car was valued at more money than where it was, where I bought it in North Carolina. So I actually ended up making money on the car wreck. Um, very rare for these types of things, but that happened to me. And so I got a little bit of a settlement from it and was just like, okay, I kept asking spirit and meditating and asking for all the signs about what to do next. And anything I did, whether it was tarot or meditation, everything just kept saying Asheville, Mm. um, which is about an hour and a half from where I grew up. And I had spent some time, a lot of time there during my college years, because it was only an hour drive from where I went to college. Um, And I used to play a lot of shows there and music and had a good music community there. So I was like, okay, I'll listen. Um, So, yeah. Went to Asheville. That was four years ago now. Oh, man. Asheville is the coolest. I mean, I don't know why Asheville is calling all these people here, but I have met the most amazing, warm-hearted, loving, friendly, joyful people here. And something magical is happening. (laughs) Um, so tell me about your, so you moved to Asheville and I know that you started working. Maybe when did you go to South America for the first time? Uh, well, the first time was in 2017 for a yoga teacher training Mm -hmm. uh, in Calca, North of Cusco. Um, in Peru. Yeah. Calca, yeah, in Cusco, mm-hmm. Peru. And then um a year later, um a few months into my Asheville experience, I maxed out a credit card and went back and did a 10 day immersion and training uh of the universal uh Paco. Um and I did that with um someone who eventually became a dear friend and teacher and still is, uh, Joan Parisi Wilcox who wrote a book called um, Masters of the Living Energy, mm-hmm. um, a well-known book on Andean cosmology and uh, a lot of uh, Pacos and Caro. Um, some have referred to it as like their Bible because mm-hmm. it was some of the first times some of their stories were written down. And Joan's a very like astute academic and like, okay, no, like I want it work as absolutely close as possible as to what they said. And so she had a translator and there's all these things and, it's become a meaningful book um, to that culture. Um, And yeah, so, and her teachers um, are Juan and Yvonne Nunez del Prado. Um, That's a father-son combo. And the grandfather of that combo uh, was uh, a man who um, was the first to reach the Caro high in the mountains. as far as I know, and as far as the knowledge is now, and that was like back in the fifties, they're all anthropologists. And, um, so they are, um, they were initiated into various modalities and then grew up in, in, in Cusco and, um, are pretty well-known teachers there. They're, they're leading retreats and stuff all the time. So yeah, that was my second time was learning for them on a 10 day trip where they took us to all the places, um, and how to do rituals in Machu Picchu and all those mm-hmm. sacred sites. And um, and then also even a, a part of it 
um, I forget the site where we at, where we were at, but the um, some of the Caro, so like not all Caro are Pacos and not all Pacos are Caro. Um, and so some of the Caro were actually learning for the first time parts of um, the lineage that is taught through Juan and Yvonne with us for the first time, which was a super fascinating part of that trip to learn about, um, as well as learning about, um, you know, like Caro, for example, like they're, they're still treated poorly in hospitals um, around the Andes. Sometimes they're not even treated at all and they're kind of looked down upon. I think that's starting to change. Um, and there are some, uh, some initiatives for some care for them down there. Um, yeah, yeah, that's part of my, my experiences in Peru thus far. Peru is so interesting because it's like, it, and this is, I think this is pretty common in a lot of South American countries, at least the ones that I have been to, which I have only been to like four of them. Um, when I went to Peru, I did this hike. I was supposed to hike the Inca Trail, which was a huge disaster. If you have not heard that story, it's in one of my earlier oh, yeah. episodes Okay. Um, yeah. about how like sick I got. And I had to come down after the first day and it was like, really, I was violent. I thought I was going to die. And mm. ayahuasca came to me in a vision on this mountain. Anyway, mm. the comp there's all these companies that take people, uh, like white people, uh, up to yeah. Machu Picchu on the Inca Trail. The Inca Trail is a sacred trail that the indigenous, all these different tribes that they used to, it was like a rite of passage for them. And they believed that there was different sites where they would stop and have medicine. And um, it's a very sacred place. But now it's like kind of a touristy it's very hard. I mean, it's like walking up the back of the highest mountain and then you come down into Machu Picchu, but it's, you know, Peru is, is very strenuous. And, um, but there was in all of these different companies that do these tours, they have these native indigenous people working for them who are essentially like Sherpas. They're like Andean versions of Sherpas and they carry, all of our stuff they carry and it and it's not just like they have okay your backpack whatever they're carrying that stuff up and you're just hiking and then when you get to where you're stopping for the night they have set up your food you're sleeping like they're carrying everything it's not just your clothes and whatever and they can go up that mountain so fast and like yeah. so I had no idea about any of this stuff and the guy, like our guide was telling us you know if it wasn't for this job like a lot of these people would be starving because in Peru they're looked down upon and it's like that in lots of countries like the indigenous people don't like everything has been so westernized that the indigenous people are treated I mean there's like systemic racism against them it's I was just like I don't what how is this it's happening I was just like fascinated by that because um mm this company that I was with was saying how like, Oh, you know, we treat them so well and they have their own bunkhouse and all this stuff. And I was like, are these your slaves? Like, I don't want to be part of this. <laughs> it's, it's bad. Yeah. Um, and a lot of tourism is like that, you know, like a lot of places where we're just like going in there and doing whatever there's people are getting jobs and it's like bringing money to their economy, but at what cost, you know? So it's just something you start to really have to look at when you start going into these areas, because it's a real these are real people with with 
you know, rich history of their own people and their own communities. And like, they're just carrying people's stuff up and down this mountain. I don't know. It's, it's, it's one of those things you have to start to grapple with, you know, when you start working with these medicines and going to sacred places and like looking at ruins and all of that. So how, tell me about your relationship with Peru and like the indigenous, like how did that, um, grow for you as you started to study Andean shamanism? Yeah. Um, well, you know, some, it's interesting. Some of the people we're mentioning here in this culture, like these are descendants of the Inca people. Right. Um, and you know, uh, Juan and Yvonne talk about how, like, how was Machu Picchu built? Well, they say it was built with Munai, um, that could, as I know it, translated as love or love under your will or big, big love, big compassionate love. And that was built with the love for um, uh, uh, a leader, Pachacuti. I I had that yearning that's the, the phenomenon that happens of somebody that drinks ayahuasca that's not from that culture and is like, I want to be a shaman, mm-hmm. right? Um, that was me. I was that guy. Um, but I think I learned fairly quickly that at least my path in that would be to learn more about the culture and the people. And um, <clears throat> so that's what I've been doing. And, and, and I'm humble to that. I think I started encountering difficulties when I would learn from different lineages, um, uh, conflicting information or, or, or conflicting views about certain things that happened during ayahuasca. Um, you know, a lot of people speak about ayahuasca being this like ontology disruptor. Uh, for many of us that didn't grow up with a cosmology that, for example, doesn't see the universe as good or bad. Um, the universe is heavy or light. So I, I, I channeled that um, curiosity and, and uh, notion that I want to be a shaman into learning about the different cultures and um, starting to um, just take what I called my master notes. I have like a 250 page PowerPoint of this thing. I've been just collecting information um, and trying to understand. And then, um, you know, I heard somebody say recently that like, well, and actually here's a way I see it in the United States is like, there's a shaman sized hole in the psyche of the United States. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and we try to fill it with a lot of different things and i don't know if any of them have been fully successful yet mm-hmm. um or it hasn't you know, mm-hmm. you know let's be real um but at least in the united states some people and and i would i agree with this for the for the most part is like the social worker is is like the shaman of the united states is going into communities and working with them on the ground floor in a relational capacity saying, let's help this community. And what does helping this community actually mean? It's interesting that you, that you mentioned the, the, I want to be a shaman phenomenon. Why wouldn't you want to be a shaman? If you <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. like pe- people are, it's sort of like a joke in the spiritual community, right? Of like, oh, of course, everybody has their like, I want to be a shaman phase, but we are desperate 
for teachers, for elders, for a path, for some kind of culture, for some kind of like answers to like, why are we so fucked up? We don't know. And there's no one here to teach us and no one here to help us. So when we find something that is so magical, where there's people who have carried knowledge from the past and they're holding it and sharing it, I completely understand that. Like, I didn't ever have that. I want to be a shaman, but I definitely had that. I want to be in this space and I want to help. And I want to be around this because it was the only thing that started to make sense to me. And we're a culture who has had everything stripped from us. We are, our religion is commerce. You know, our, our spiritual lives have been replaced with like social media and scrolling and and video games and like everything feels fake. So when you start to touch something real, we don't know how to experience it without like commodifying it and, and taking it and trying to turn it into what we understand, which is not very much. And, and we don't have a connection to the earth. We don't have a connection. Like we've lost all of our, all of our root system has been ripped out and we're just sort of like floating around, like, where can I root in? And so I'm really glad that you said that because there's nothing to be ashamed about if you have that if you have that drive like I believe that these medicines are trying to spread themselves all over the world and this is how they're doing it is is creating that like I want to be a okay so how do I do that well mm-hmm. for most people the path is to learn as much as possible to start like asking questions and asking teachers and initiated medicine people like why do you do it like this how do I learn this you know and the goal the end goal is not necessarily to be the one sitting in the chair serving medicine and most people who are doing this are actually have gotten to like that's not why I'm even doing this like I just want to know and be part of the family and be part of the people that are spreading the the love and holding space in a good way whether whatever that space holding looks like because we need all hands on deck it's not just like it's not about the person sitting in the shaman seat. Like that is one part of a huge system of people that's needed to support this like mass awakening that we want to happen. So thanks for being interested, like following that call and like being interested in it, because I know that you're doing really amazing stuff here in this part of the country. Tell me your Rhythmia story. And if you don't know Rhythmia, Rhythmia is a very fancy, they're in Costa Rica. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Very like well-known celebrities go there and um they have a a largely expensive retreat that you can go to and they give scholarships, right? They do. Yeah. So you got a scholarship. So what happened at Rhythmia? Yeah. Well, I they yeah, they give scholarships. I think they give like seven a month. Um I just learned about it in a documentary I was watching, hopped on their website, saw that they were giving away scholarships. That happened to be on New Year's Eve at midnight on the dot. And I submitted my application for a scholarship at like 12.01 on New Year's Eve. Uh, And yeah, whatever it was, a couple of weeks later, I get the email like you've been selected for an interview. Um, So they give you an interview, um, sort of screening you if you're available for the medicine. And then you enter into the second phase to see if you actually win uh, the scholarship. And I won the scholarship. Um, it, it, I mean, it's a, it w- didn't include the plane ticket, um, but it included the pl- price for the retreat, price for the medicine and food, uh, mm-hmm. but not uh, juices, <laughs> a side note, although I didn't that's know that. Strange. I, got the, 
no no green juices um well you had to pay for that yourself but i didn't know that till i got there okay you know whatever that's a little side note of what happened um yeah you know so i, I <laughs> i've been through a pretty big process um in, in in since i've gotten back it's been a year a little over a year since i've gotten back you know the staff is like super friendly and on point i mean i think they cater to this western notion of a doctor and you know there's so there's a doctor on staff you visit a doctor like you, they're checking your vitals and all that stuff a lot of people feel really safe with that and that's great um i think that well i know that they are like most of the people that go to rhythmia go there as a part of their first time or or mm -hmm. as that's their first time as far as like my personal experience with the medicine i went really deep in to the medicine had some great experiences uh eventually like the big takeaway was just feeling uh lighter about uh, my decision to quit basketball in high school mm -hmm. uh, that one that wound uh has a lot surrounding it and really impacted my relationships with others and i came away from that feeling a bit lighter i've been writing a uh, a book about how the United States fails pe uh, young people in the realm of sports and what we can do about it, how we can bring in practices like sharing circles or emotional check-ins or things like that into our sports culture. And that's been spawned from that experience. Mm, nice. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I came into it as someone very passionate about learning about indigenous culture, about how, um, how and what the global globalization of ayahuasca, what that means and and how to best participate in it in its uh, evolution. Um, so yeah, a lot of people share some pretty stark opinions about rhythmia, and I shared those for a good bit. And I still share them to a degree um, within the complexity of me not knowing what is best. I believe ayahuasca is an intelligence that's way smarter than me uh -huh. um, and it's doing its thing there and people are having healing experiences there. Um, I spoke uh, with a woman named Kat that used to serve there and, and she is okay with me sharing this information. You know, I, I was having a hard time about Rhythmia not having any integration program or anything set up for integration. For example, I drank on Thursday all the way through the night, stayed up all the way through the night, like barely got sleep on Friday and left at like 10 a.m. on Saturday. So still super intense. I jump right into being on a plane. There's no offering of integration or anything. And I had diarrhea for seven days when I got home um, and tried to call them for support. And, you know, they're more or less saying like, hey, that sucks. Make sure you drink water and and, you know. That was that. And, you know, haven't heard from anyone since. And I don't like, you know, the only integration they do offer is uh, recordings of your of the workshops that happen there. Um, but you have to pay those. And that wasn't included in my scholarship. It was a thousand dollars and I had to buy it then. And I didn't have a thousand dollars. You know, um, I, I got the scholarship because I was in poverty financially mm -hmm. um, and barely made it happen financially to even get my ticket and get my shifts covered. 
Um, but you know what Kat and I, sort of the conclusion we came to is like, look, I don't want to take down Rhythmia. I, the, like, it's a complex thing. And um, I, I have love in my heart for Jerry and for Rhythmia and what's happening there. And, you know, like something I've been working on and, and, and a friend of mine came up with this, uh, my friend Nick Morse is like holding uh, uh, paradox and nuance faithfully. Um, so I try to do that in reference to Rhythmia and um, it's, you know, uh, lack of um, more education and set up around um, what reciprocity means. I mean, that's the, like, to me, studying Andean cosmology, it's like, I learned Aini is the golden rule. Mm-hmm. It is, if there's any rule or religious kind of doctrine, it's Aini and, you know, essentially nothing else. <laughs> like there's other things, of course, depending on where you're at in specific to each culture, but Aini is the thing. Can right? you define that just in case people don't know what that means? Yeah, Aini is a, a Quechua word most often translated as reciprocity or sacred reciprocity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what, um, like, the Pacos live by. It's it's their golden rule. So, for example, one practice they have is called a despacho in Spanish or a hirawiki in Quechua. I did one of those last night. Did you? I yeah. just did one this morning with my girlfriend. <laughs> That's That's so awesome. cool. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're really powerful. They... You know, so this is like the primary practice of Pacos. They they work with Aini and with despachos. Um, so it's like it, it's a it's a practice of Aini to give your prayers into this offering on the ground, which traditionally in Peru could consist of uh, like little snowballs to represent snow caps on the mountains, mm-hmm. flowers, beautiful mandalas. Uh, a llama fetus is even traditionally in there. Wow, we did not have a llama fetus. <laughs> oh yeah, that that one's like that's like real kind of real deal one, as yeah. far as like getting getting into Peru for how they do it there and what mm-hmm. they teach. And they it's also there's also candy in them. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be like gifts for uh, seen and unseen worlds or or beings in the ukupacha or you know that's sort of translated as like the underworld or the inner world or mm-hmm. under the soil. Um, it gets kind of complicated trying to translate mm-hmm. these things, but yeah. So the, the despacho is an offering of Aini with the universe. And so it's like a feedback loop. You give your depression, your joy, your sadness, your tears, you put all that into the despacho and then it's either burned or buried or put mm-hmm. in water. Uh, and then life is sort of a, a loop feedback loop of your Aini with that practice. Mm-hmm. The way um, that, the way that I, my teachers in from Ecuador taught it to us is like, um, the re- Aini is reciprocity. It's like the opposite of, it's not transactional. Yes. Like, so it's give what you have when you can, and then receive what you need when you need it. And if everyone does that, then everyone always has what they need. And they always have a, there's always a space to give even like, so you're giving, you're giving offerings. Like this morning I went to a waterfall and I left a coin, a chocolate, a candle, flowers and prayers there because I had a, 
assignment from a shaman from this weekend <laughs> I have to go and put some but that's the that's the reciprocity is like I am praying for something for myself and this is what I'm offering to this waterfall and and it's like that with okay so you want to give up your depression you want to give up your suffering what offering are you going to put with that like so that's kind of the giving piece and also giving to people who are in need and giving support and giving love and giving family and friendship and like, what can you give? And I think about it as like giving a little more than you're comfortable with. Like, like what is the most you can give? Mm. Give that. Um, and I love it's it's I think it's a little different in all of the different cultures and the different countries and the different tribes. And it all is so beautiful. And I like it was my first time to do despacho. We did an unwinding one and then we did a winding one. And so yesterday, was the, yeah, we did. So the unwinding is like the the release and then the winding is like asking, you know, saying thank you. Mm-hmm. And um, if you need something, this is now when you ask for it. And and that sort of originally came from the question about rhythmia and, and my mm-hmm. difficulty in understanding how they practice that. If they practice that, what does that mean? What does that mean to me to participate in mm-hmm. that? Um, I'm still breaking that down, the complexities of that. Um, yeah, that's what I'll say on that. I think it's... um. The thing about these retreat centers is like, it's important to talk about your experience there. Yeah. And the the purpose for talking about it is not to necessarily like, okay, we're coming after you. Like we're going to, you know, tear your shit down or whatever. Yeah. It's like, you have to feel safe to say what happened right. because Absolutely. there's a lot of the place that I worked in Ecuador was not remotely on like that level as rhythmia, but it's very well known. It's very popular. It has a, you know, a long history of like, this place is the best and magical. And as a guest, you might experience it like that. What I experienced was abuse and like terror for my life and being overworked to the point of, of like, really my health was being damaged Mm -hmm. and the owner is not well. And like, I have not felt safe to really talk about that because it doesn't feel safe to talk about the dark side of this stuff. Right. And there's a a lot of darkness in the medicine world because mm-hmm. there's money involved. There's, you know, sexual trauma. There's like all kinds of inappropriate stuff happening yeah. and not every place is like that, but some of the places are. I had also a beautiful experience at the place that I worked as a guest and many, many, many beautiful experiences as a staff member and the family that I work with and have learned from for all these years, I met them there and now they have their own land. So like, it was such a beautiful experience. And it's like you said, holding that paradox of like, this is magical. This is amazing. Also, there's some dark shit. And like, you have to like, look underneath the rug and be like, Ooh, we need right. to be open and be able to look at that as well. Yeah. And, and I think that we've, you know, I mean, we're establishing uh, cultural values as the psychedelic movement, whatever we want to call it is happening. We're establishing values and ethics mm-hmm. as it moves forward and it's young, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so it's up to us. And, 
you know, like so, so there's pros and cons to all the retreat models, all the integration models, all the things. Like, for example, I mean, Rhythmia's, you know, serving medicine to 60 to 100 people um, at once, four nights in a row, weekly, all year. Um, and, you know, one, like my night of Yahe, when I started to feel the gurgles, like I was like, oh, shit, I'm going to purge. Like, this is very difficult. I need some help. I raise my hand, I look over to where the helpers are, and I can't tell if they're there, but I can't really move. And I just kind of hold my hand up for a little bit, like trying to look over there, like, oh, oh are they is anyone over there? I can't tell. Oh, I could really use some help right now. And then it just kind of dawned on me that they were not there, that I was not being prioritized at that moment. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as I realized that, it was like the medicine was kind of like well, how do you respond when you're not the priority? Mm. And then I purged and um, a huge purge. And that's where a lot of the um, clarity around my whole experience came from that purge. I kind of knew it in the moment while I was purging. And so that's one example of a lar- the, the uh, benefit I received from a large group at that time in my life. I don't like, I don't want a large group anymore. Um, And I also don't want the models of, you know, I, I, I kind of held it like a doctrine for a little bit of like um, this model of like, when you're in an ayahuasca ceremony, you sit down, you don't speak to anybody. You don't make noises. You don't bother anybody else. You just sit there and reflect all it's all on you. The individual focus on you. And like, I've received benefit from that, you know, but again, it's like, if we're building a long-term value and culture here, um, this is just part of the conversation and in, in choosing um, your experience, whether you work one-on-one with a shaman or a group or whatever. Um, for example, in, in some traditional cultures, like, um, as I understand it now, it could be wrong, is... Uh, that like ayahuasca is just drink as a part of like a community night mm-hmm. and anything could be happening while the medicine's being drank. Like the chickens could be walking through the ceremony. <laughs> Someone's children could walk up to their parent, like mommy, daddy, I need something. And that's tended to, and maybe that's a distraction <laughs> or maybe that's just life happening in the ceremony. And now, um, you know, uh, 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 something to, be talked about is the expectations of modern Western people um, and and their expectations around what ceremony is supposed to be. And, mm-hmm. you know, certain indigenous uh, uh, ayahuasqueros are um, being expected to learn about psychology and trauma and having to use those words in order to please the guests. And that's a complicated thing uh, to, to consider. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, from, from what's, what are the long-term impacts of essentially like forcing that, or or is this just like, are they doing it for the commerce? And, Mm -hmm. um, and also something to note too, is like, I mean, you know, shamanism as a whole, as much as we can try to break it down as a a whole is, it's like, there are dark aspects of it. People like, like almost like Harry Potter, you learn the dark side as well as the light side. And that's part of the experience is mm-hmm. learning about what that means to each culture and, and that that's also a part of this thing. And, um, you know, I, sometimes I wonder, like, you know, I wonder how, like, after my first time, I, it was a real ontological shock 
Um, and I had a really hard time, like finding people that could really understand what was happening for me. And I wonder how many first timers go to Rhythmia and have that same experience. I wonder about them now. And that's true of any retreat center, but at least, you know, the, the, the complexity and the difficulty comes from like, Hey, uh, at least some of these other centers are trying to implement integration programs and mm-hmm. at least care for people a little bit enough to um, give them some basic tools about what it, what they just experienced. Cause ultimately it's like, you're, you know, it's a cultural initiation. You're taking part in the sacred medicine that has been used for thousands of years and sustained communities um, thriving and their ability to heal and be close with one another and, and create meaning in the world has been centralized around this. And now I'm being invited in and like, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that's a, that's a difficult thing to consider, especially when now I've received benefit. I feel lighter. I feel like I know myself better and I'm on a new path. And maybe I didn't like, you know, initially I set out to like, oh, I want to like maybe heal some father wounds or mother wounds or like I I need healing. So I'm doing this thing. And now I'm like also talking about Andean cosmology and um, and what that is. And, 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 you know, to me, Andean cosmology was like something I absolutely needed post ayahuasca to just make sense of what was happening at least a little bit because what is happening is a big question as far as where you go where are those visions where the beings come from what does interacting with beings mean and how does that fit into the larger reality or waking reality or whatever so much of the experience we don't have language for we don't have um it's like you said people are doing this medicine in their families and everyone does it and everyone speaks the language and everyone understands what's happening and when you fly to another country and spend five days and then come home and you go back to your like job your whole psyche and your spirit are at risk of being fractured because it's like you don't have anywhere to land there's all of this ripe it's like having a, a seedling with that's rooted, that's like ready to be put in the ground. And if you put it into, you know, a toxic <laughs> desert, it's not going to grow. It's going to die. Mm-hmm. And um, I think for me, that's like why integration is so important and finding someone that does speak the language that can teach you the language. If you don't understand it, you know, or at like hold your hand while you're figuring it out yourself um, is so vitally important because I saw that over and over in my work you know, in the retreat industry was like, people were getting what they needed in the, like the medicine was doing the work, the medicine carriers were holding the space. Like everybody was having these like blowout, you know, transformation experiences and it wasn't sticking because there was nothing to stick it into. Like people were going back into the same environment that made them sick. And they're like, why can't I stay sober? Why can't I, you know, make these changes and then blaming themselves because they failed because they spent all this money because that's what we think we think if we pay the money and we go to the thing and then then we should be fixed and like if yeah if we don't receive it like that then there's something there must be well i must be unfixable and it's like it's not your fault it's not you it's that you don't have the resources that you need to actually change anything Mm, so tell me about 
apex because this is the kind of resource that is amazing to be growing in this part of the country. Lay it on me. What is it? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I'm born and raised in, in Appalachia. I, I grew up in a trailer park in Northeast Tennessee. Uh, my dad's from Southwest Virginia. I also lived in Kentucky and I've lived in Knoxville and Atlanta and Asheville. And so this Southeast region of Appalachia is, is a home to me in a lot of ways. Um, and it, it took me a while to realize through my experience with medicines, like just how much I wasn't owning that. Mm-hmm. Um, being someone from this region, a, a lot of us share this kind of like, once, if you get out into the world, you're, you're judged from being from, uh, Southern Appalachia as like mm-hmm. usually not smart or unintelligent or uneducated. Um, and I, I felt that the medicines were helping me reconcile that my work with them were just helping me to really own the value and the importance and the beauty of who I am as someone that's from Appalachia, along with many other, um, crossroads of identities. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I, I gave that talk on Iboga and my argumentation and debate class. I've had a propensity to learn and be more uh, outspoken about um, psychedelics, indigenous plant medicines and the like, mm-hmm. uh, as well as studying, you know, these cosmologies. And um, I've been, you know, I think you spoke to it earlier. It's like there's a belonging happening and wanting to happen through who am I in relationship to psychedelics and indigenous plant medicines and indigenous cultures? What does that mean? Um, so uh, Apex was started out of like, hey, let's let's have that conversation. Um, uh, let, let's create something here in Appalachia. Let's create a resource here for um, education, for these talks. Um, we're a fairly new organization. So we haven't started having circles or anything like that. Um, we are planning a summit for late 2023 and a conference in 2024. Um, and, you know, our intention is to platform Appalachia. We want people in this area and in this region um, to experience more access to resources that we haven't had in this area. Mm-hmm. Um, so to just like, sometimes it's it's just meeting people where they are, having the conversations about um, what is the safe use of that or, or parents that are having questions about how to talk to their children about these things? Like, why is Aaron Rodgers, the NFL MVP, drinking something called ayahuasca and saying mm-hmm. it helped him? Mm-hmm. You know, we want to we help answer that question for parents, for kids, for everyone. Um, we want to do that through the summit, the conference, um, film screenings, uh, education, and the like. Amazing. Well, in my short time here, and I, I cannot tell you how blessed I feel to be here. This place is the most beautiful place, like nature wise, I have ever lived. It's just the people are so and I'm from the south. I'm from Texas. I'm from a a place that I had a lot of shame about as well. I'm from the panhandle of Texas, which is like, there's not a lot going on there. We don't have water. We don't have trees. We have a big hole in the ground, Powder Canyon. That's about it. And I didn't know much about this part of the world. You know, I came here with my partner, his family lives here. And as soon as I got here, I was just like, people are so lovely here. Like I thought Texans were friendly, but this is just a different level. Like the love and then like people genuinely care about you. They don't know you. 
they're like neighborly here and friendly and and like welcoming and warm and inviting. And I just absolutely love it here. It's a gift to get to be here. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel blessed by these waterfalls. I feel like yeah, so many. I am so grateful for this. Like the natural world here is something else. And it doesn't really surprise me that there are so many medicine people here. I mean, I just keep meeting more and more amazing, amazing medicine people here. And um, the knowledge of, and like how many people here have been doing this for a long time, there's like sweat lodges, there's circles, there's all kinds of drum circles and spiritual, you can go sit with awesome people any night of the week. And there's also um, people in this community that I've met at like psychedelic circle meetings who are new to all of this, you know, and who a lot of them are older, you know, I keep meeting like older elders who are suffering and who are wanting to work with medicine, but they have no idea like how to source and what do I do? And so I have been asked this before, like, what do we do about this specific population? Like, how do we help them find what they need so they can get this like, cause a lot of them are not going to get on a plane and go to a retreat, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious about how that is, I don't know. It's so hard to talk about sourcing because it's not legal. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, you can't, you can't be like, okay, well, we're going to send you some numbers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have to talk about this all the time. I'm like, I can't help you with that because if I did, then it would be, you know, crossing a line and a line that I can't cross at, at this time. However, there are ways to do this. There's lots of organizations that are doing, you know, helping you figure out like, okay, how can I, how can I actually sit with these medicines? And I tell you, you wouldn't think, but if you do a quick Google or you look for Eventbrite or like, meet up you would be amazed what is on there regarding sitting with medicine wow yeah um so what is your what would you say is your vision for apex mm-hmm. yeah um well something that just came to me recently was to do um a psychedelic speaker incubator mm-hmm. um so i think that a lot of people even if it's just like that one mushroom ceremony you did when you were 18 or 21 or whatever, it was really impactful for you. Um, To me, speaking about those things and especially speaking in front of a crowd can be really powerful. Mm -hmm. So since part of Apex's vision is summits and conferences with speakers and panels, um, I just got the idea to um, create a psychedelic speaker incubator. So we'll, we'll work on like what you know how to be a storyteller what are how to hit certain points how how to tell your story what is your story and help help people work through that um with uh, a, a caveat that at the end they would be able to speak at one of these events um whether that's like i don't know it's not completely clear maybe there'll be some kind of competition for that incubator that like top three people get to speak or something i'm not sure how it'll look um but that's at least um uh one way i see we can directly impact the lives and the culture um in appalachia in relationship to what's happening with psychedelics and indigenous plant medicines amazing so tell me a little bit about your own personal work that you do i know you're training to be a marriage and family therapist right 
And yep. what does that work look like for you? Yeah. So, you know, I'm just a little bit into grad school right now, um, but I've been creating my own program for several years. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that looks like right now is I've created something called the Romantic Relationship Agreement Workbook. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a, a depthy document that lays out uh, a lot of the agreements that are made between uh, romantic uh, p- people that are choosing to be romantic. Um, I believe that most relationships fail because of lack of clear agreements at the beginning. Um, and so this workbook has been used in my own relationship. It's still being used. Um, and alongside that workbook, I created something um, that is essentially a self-awareness scale mm-hmm. that um, helps couples get to that point where they're all in fully committed to each other and they're choosing that from an empowered place. Um, these are two things that I'm still developing in my own relationship and two things that I plan on working with other people in. Um, so right now I'm working with people in a kind of coaching container with that. And eventually it would be therapy, but I'm not graduated yet. So Mm -hmm. taking the coaching model, man, coaching plus therapy, look out superpowers. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I love there's so I've been meeting a lot of people that are like either transitioning from being a therapist and now they're doing coaching or they started as a coach and then they're like getting their therapy degree. And it's like, yeah. it's like the best of both. It's cool. I'm yeah, saying sure. all for it. Everything that works, do it all. How can people get in touch with you to connect with you, both your personal stuff and Apex? How do they get, get a hold of you? Yep. Yep. So you can reach me um, at uh, www.earthismagic.com. Mm-hmm. Um, that's got all links to my personal stuff and um, tons of resources on psychedelic uh, documentaries and um, uh, podcasts and all the like, and even relationship stuff. And if you're interested in Apex, our website is www apex.info that's a-a-p-e-x dot info awesome and you're doing your summit later this year and then next year will be the conference where are you gonna are you gonna have the conference in nashville 100 that's the plan um, we feel well prepared for the summit we're curating that right now uh the conference we're hoping for some philanthropy uh mm-hmm. and some funding to come through so uh, we're working on relationships for that um, and yes, we want it to, the conference, the summit and conference will start in Asheville. Um, and, and both of those, uh, for me, I have a, a, a long-term vision of rotating around Appalachia. So we want to host that conference in other cities that aren't having nice. them or help others um, in, in that fashion around Appalachia. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, we're working closely with uh, uh, a company called the Pearl Psychedelic Institute. They're mm-hmm. in Waynesville, North Carolina. Um, they're part of MAPS trials doing uh, MDMA for uh, PTSD, and they are they have individuals going through um, that trial right now, a veteran, mm-hmm. and they're a wonderful organization that we are working closely with. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. And okay, so you know how to get a hold of Justin. What is, tell me your nickname, Cause. I don't remember the story exactly, but um, I know most people call you cause. So. Yeah. yeah, most most people in Asheville do it. It's kind of a, a nickname, nickname that just 
came about as an endearing term. So um, mm-hmm. Cosmore is my musician name. You can mm-hmm. find me on Spotify with that music. Um, and my friends just started like calling me Cos or Cosy Baby or Cos, <laughs> Cos or whatever. Nice. And, um, you know, it felt really endearing and fun to me. And I, I liked it and, and just started taking it on. I started introducing myself as that. And, um, you know, but I, to me, like, all the nickname stuff that we're seeing happening in the world can take on a kind of grandiose separation. Like for me, like trying to separate Justin and cause it's like, well, mm-hmm. like Justin's fine, mm-hmm. you know, but cause is also endearing and I like it and it's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, so I accept both and, and, you know, um, cause isn't to, a, a name to sort of put myself in any grandiose category that Justin isn't invited to. I hear yeah. you. I yeah. that's something I've run into here a lot is um everybody's got a Sanskrit name here or like some kind of there is a lot of that. This is new for me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, this is this is how it is. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So long as you can like treat um regular people nicely. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like then great. You call yourself whatever you want. Yeah, I don't I don't have any issue with it. Um, other than you don't have to have that. Like you don't need to change exactly. your name. The med- t- taking medicine doesn't mean you need to get a Reiki certification. I always say this because it doesn't, it's not um meant to exclude you from being a regular version of whatever you're doing, you know, like the spiritual path is not a costume, it's not a name, it's not a affectation that you put on it's just like okay how are you treating yourself in your life like how are you engaging with your partner how are you parenting how are you doing your family like this is where your spiritual work is it isn't like get a huge collection of crystals and gongs you know <laughs> I mean, those things are nice I really like I like that stuff too yeah. but I think I started to evolve truly when I realized it isn't about what you look like on the outside. And I get the wanting to align with that because you're kind of putting on outside, like, this is what I'm about now. And Mm -hmm. it's the same kind of thing as like the call to be the shot. You're like, okay, I need to like change how I am. And one of the most fun ways to change how you are is to like change your appearance. Right. So I get the, I get where it comes from. And I also always say, don't feel like you need to do that if it doesn't resonate with you. And if it does, cool. Like get your, get your gongs, get your crystal bowls, come to my house and give me a sound healing. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) for sure. I want to relax and chill out with that. Yeah. I know. I love it. I'm like, when I walk into a space and everybody's got like, it's like, yes, I am here to receive your magic. Like, it's amazing. Thank you so much, Justin. I really enjoyed talking with you. We went all over the place. This is a great conversation. Um, My favorite thing to ask my guests at the end of our conversation is, is there any piece of wisdom that you would like to share as your parting statement? Mm. Uh, You know, be yourself. That one has been the most simple one for me that often seems so complex, but it's also so simple. It just happens as a result of like, you know, throwing your shoulders back and relaxing into like, Hey, I accept myself and I'm me. There's, you know, a good friend of mine, we were talking about 
like there's literally never gonna be another you nope. and and like so just be you're literally here to be you mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's you that's what you're here to do i love that that's so true it's so it's like doesn't it feel like such a relief too like wow cool <laughs> like I can just be whatever I can be weird. I can be whatever. It like doesn't matter. It's that's the point is to let it like we I think that's why we're struggling so much is that we don't fit in, you know, we're we're square pegs. We don't fit in this round hole. We have to make our own shaped hole. I'm not a square. I don't know what shape I am, but some kind of shape. I'm a waterfall shape. That's my shape. <laughs> One of the major integration books I've read is uh, this book called Belonging by Tokopat Turner. And mm-hmm. she tells the like the real story of Cinderella, who like, you know, instead of trying to fit into the glass slipper, like apparently the original grim fairy tale had uh, the foot cut off in order to fit in. That sounds more like Grimm's. That's, right? Yeah. And That's so the, too scary for kids, right? It would. Yeah, sure. Right. And And so, but the message there is that like, you'll cut off parts of yourself in order to belong. Right. So it's a fascinating one. That's beautiful. Belonging is such a powerful topic. I have to make a podcast about that sometime. Yeah. yeah, that would be a good one. Thank you, brother. It was such a pleasure. I really appreciate your time. Thanks everyone for being here. Check the show notes for all the links and resources that Justin mentioned in our talk today. And have a great week. See you next week. <laughs>